Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vankivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. So today we're going to be talking about mass incarceration. Um, We're really going to be setting the foundation for the podcast and kind of giving you guys um, a detailed image of who is incarcerated, um, what mass incarceration is, how it impacts overall society, and essentially like why do we care about mass incarceration. So today I have with me Dr. Brienne Plegancool. She's an assistant professor at SIU University, which is in Carbondale. Um, She's in the criminal justice department. Um, Just a little bit of information about Brienne is she's completed her master's degree and PhD in criminology and criminal justice at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. Um, She's had a lot of research opportunities kind of looking at the experiences of formerly incarcerated individuals, as well as like looking at consequences that are associated with having a felony conviction. Um, More recently, a lot of her research is looking at kind of like the impact of community context and on recidivism and gender differences. So I think it's safe to say that Brienne has a lot of experience in talking about this. And then just in addition to like her own experience, she's also a professor that teaches uh, the mass incarceration course at my school. And I think like just being in her course, I've gotten a very clear understanding of like what mass incarceration is and just like being able to understand it a little bit better, like I've said. So I think her being on here will truly be able she'll be able to convey to you guys the same thing so before we get started um i'll let brianne talk for a little bit if there's anything that she would like to say um but if not we'll we'll jump right in so thank you for having me i don't that was a perfect introduction in terms of what i do and hopefully what i know a little bit about and it's an ongoing process we're all still learning a lot um over the last decade or so since i've completed but thank you for having me yes anytime Okay, so yeah, I guess like we'll get started and um, just kind of jump into like the very first topic of things. I think one of the things like to highlight first is, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but um, the United States, like just looking at like our incarceration rates, we have at least like 2.4 million people incarcerated in our prisons. Well, I'm not even just prisons, but this is just incarcerated in general and ranging from jails, prisons, juvenile detention centers, uh, even mental health facilities where people are incarcerated. Um, We're one of the leading nations in incarceration. So I think it's really important for us to kind of first start talking about, like I said, who is incarcerated and kind of what trends have we seen in the past decade or in the past century? Is that something you think you can talk about with us first? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We know that the U.S. is a leader in incarceration, unfortunately, and, and by far. And it's not sort of just by a little bit when we look at totality of trends. And this is a relatively new phenomenon. If you're looking in terms of the last hundred years, we saw incarceration start to skyrocket in the late seventies through the eighties, nineties, two thousands. And the last decade, we've seen just a little bit of repeal on that, where we've seen a little bit of downward trend, but not nearly to the same rate of acceleration to get to this point. So you pointed out a really good fact in terms of how many on any given day are behind bars. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's so about 2.3. Behind prison bars, it's mm-hmm. around a million at our at our peak. 
Um, but we have so many people in jails for, you know, days, months, even years at a time. Uh, so we we do see a really heavy representation in the U.S. Um, in terms of being under any form of correctional supervision. And of course, our most severe sanctioning is being behind bars. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, it's 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 it. What am I trying to say here? I think that uh, when you think about those numbers and it's very alarming because uh, I don't think like just as general population, we don't think about that. Um, and we don't think about this population of people most times unless it like directly impacts us. Um, so, you know, kind of going off of that and kind of talking about this representation of the incarcerated systems, can you give us kind of like a breakdown, like I guess of demographics of kind of what this looks like, I guess, starting from like racial and ethnicity? Sure, absolutely. It, it, that's important to realize is that incarceration is not equally impactful. Mm-hmm. At our peak, we had somewhere around 750, uh, the rate, 750 persons per 100,000, which is astronomical. But when you start breaking that down by gender, age, race, it, you see some very uh, discrepancy patterns. And probably to nobody's surprise, given kind of structural characteristics and what we incarcerate people for, persons of color are just drastically impacted at a much higher rate than white Caucasian counterparts. When you look right. at the graphics, yeah, you see that anybody, right? We had that rate of 750 per 100,000. But when you look at black men, for example, that's more than more than double usually. So black men and women actually during the 80s, 90s, in terms of the get tough on crime, there was a lot of drug enforcement policies that were very targeted towards people of color. So where it usually lines up is that uh, we're looking purely at race, Whites get the sort of the least proportionate um, representation. Hispanic or Latinx uh, individuals are sort of the middle, and Black individuals have a much higher rate overall. And we call it disproportionality or disparity, meaning when we look at our prisons, we know that the uh, Black population is about 12, 13% in totality of the US population, but close to 40% of prison populations. Yeah. So it's it's pretty dramatic if we start breaking it down by race. Yeah. And, you know, later on, I do kind of want to talk about uh, those things you were talking about, like the war on drugs and maybe these different policies and how they have like contributed to those uh, high incarceration rates, especially uh-huh. in disadvantaged groups. Um, but I noticed you talked a little bit about like gender differences. Um, uh-huh. um Does socioeconomic status or any other variables like that play a role into like you know, these high incarceration rates that we're seeing in the United States? Oh, certainly. So when you break that down into, you know, who is in prison, and we tend to see still men are clearly much more likely that it breaks down to about uh, 88, 89% men, 11, 12% women, but that's a lot different. We've actually seen an increase in the rate of incarcerated women. So would we compare it to the 1970s, before we saw this incredible increase in incarceration, it used to be more like 92% men, 8% women. So even though it sounds sort of small, it's really been a a gendered effect as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, People with lower uh, educational attainment, low socioeconomic status, cycles of poverty, absolutely are associated with incarceration. Uh, Whether it be because of the types of crimes that are being committed, due to some of those uh, general circumstances, 
or whether it be enforcement and just being punished more because there's fewer resources to navigate out of a system. So what you would expect a little bit in terms of that representation based on greater substance abuse needs and addiction, greater mental health challenges, Mm -hmm. uh, more overall, you know, uh, criminogenic neighborhoods. And so it's really disproportionate when you start narrowing down into it's not equally felt in terms of incarceration, that there are certainly populations that are much, much greater impact. Right. Uh, For sure. And you were... um just a curious thought when you were talking about that, you were talking about women. I know um, as I'm learning more about women and, you know, incarceration and reentry, um, I've also seen like the trends or the numbers have increased a little bit over the years for them. Um, do you think you can tell me a little bit about like, what do you think that's about or what has the literature said about that? Yeah. Um, gender is becoming um, a greater sort of point of reconciliation in terms of that we need to respond differently. Right. It started when we saw more and more women being incarcerated and they're often very much for substance related crimes. Their pathways into crime are very different okay. than men. Uh, a greater prevalence of traumatic histories, abuse, abusive relationships or family circumstances. There's a fair amount of co-offending where it's offending with a partner. Okay. Um, sort of uh, drawn into that greater rates of mental health diagnoses, greater rates of substance abuse and addiction. What that means is on the flip side of that is we can't just do a one size fits all in terms of prisoner reentry or even during incarceration. Okay. Uh, So being responsive to those differences is going to produce better, better uh, outcomes in totality, Uh, understanding the root causes of criminal behavior um, and and that different treatments may work different because women communicate differently or they have, uh, uh, again, different pathways into crime or different histories and, and responses to what we've typically done for treatment. A lot of the women's representation, and I know we're going to circle back to this, does have to do with uh, drug-related crimes um, being just much heavily enforced Women are often incarcerated for more financial driven. So poverty is a big intersection there and being marginalized Okay. as, as caretakers, often as maybe single parents or primary breadwinners in the family. And so we see a lot of check fraud, um, that's mm. check. so <laughs> a financial related, uh, strain related crimes often. Uh, women still are far less likely to be involved with violent crime. Okay. Yeah. Uh- that that's a lot and like I feel like that's a lot of information I didn't know um women in re-entry and like I said incarceration is not an area that I have like a lot of knowledge of I've done more like general information um but I think like that is very important for us to know because like you said people respond to treatment differently the pathways to crimes are totally different um so thank you provide for providing us with that aspect of information um while we're still on this topic of kind of gender differences and socioeconomic status and things like that are there any like geographical areas that experience more higher rates of incarceration um can you kind of talk about those areas i guess based off what you're familiar with of course sure and when you're looking nationally there is of course really different incarceration rates when we compare louisiana and oklahoma typically have really high incarceration rates versus counterparts like Minnesota or oftentimes the Northeastern states. And that's not necessarily perfectly correlated with crime. Usually it's response. 
when we start looking more at neighborhoods and the community level, mm-hmm. we would see places that are experiencing greater disadvantage is often what we call it at the community level that there's more residential instability, mm-hmm. poss- possibly higher crime, sort of lower neighborhood connections. We we call it collective efficacy to be super fancy with our, right. our words. But generally, you know, people that aren't always on the same page about the their neighborhood, uh, places that have, you know, again, more instability, more racial disparities, lower educational attainment, and uh, greater reliance on public assistance below the poverty line, single family or single parent households, particularly single mothers. And we don't say that any one of those things causes crime or causes incarceration as a response, right. but collectively, they're sort of just really hard to unpack. Oftentimes, these are more urban-centered. So, you know, we live in Illinois. Uh, we know down here, we have a number of prisons around us, and somewhere around 70, 75% are from Chicago or Cook County right. or down, down here. So we do see oftentimes incarceration hits uh, urban Centric counties vary uh, much harder. Those that are more disadvantaged, um, typically, again, very highly correlated with socioeconomic status. So we see neighborhoods that are entirely decimated because so many people from that neighborhood are incarcerated and returning and back and forth and back and forth. It has so many implications um, based on what I know you're going to be exploring with the the number of domino effects that can cause. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, and we've talked about this in class too, of like, even just St. Louis is a nearby area and like neighborhoods that have been impacted uh, heavily by incarceration. And I know, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, but I come from a neighborhood myself that um, has, you know, this kind of instability. And um, so I've seen a lot of this and um, I think particularly what I have noticed myself is kind of, like you said, those Southern states tend to have a lot of those higher incarceration rates as well as like limited resources um, and are tend to be, I'm not going to say more disadvantaged than, you know, Northern or Eastern coast states, but we see a lot of that there. Um, yeah. So that, I don't know, like that was kind of surprising to me in the course. Cause I just never really noticed that of like the Southern States and like the incarceration levels that we have. Um, so yeah, thank you. Oh, like sure. I said, thank you for sharing. And, that and it, it has this interesting effect because more incarceration and that response doesn't really lead to less crime in those neighborhoods. Right. It actually destabilizes them even further for a number of reasons. It's, it's, a really hard thing to tackle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some great work by Todd Clear does a lot mm-hmm. of this at the neighborhood and course of mobility, but it, it's a it's an odd thing and we know exactly where it's happening, but we're not great at responding or fixing that as a problem. Right. Yeah, and that's uh, the biggest thing that we're trying to figure out is how to respond uh, right now as like practitioners, criminal justice system, just in general, that's where we're trying to get to. Um, so yeah, I think that was a pretty good picture of like what incarceration is and kind of um, the extent of mass incarceration and who's incarcerated. Um, so I think, you know, we've mentioned this already, like a couple of things that have kind of contributed to incarceration, this idea of the war on drugs and even policy changes. Can you talk to us a little bit about the war on drugs and kind of what that impact did? Um, to our communities and incarceration, ultimately? Sure. There's a lot of 
schools of thought on this. Mm-hmm. Some say that, you know, the war on drugs didn't have as big of an impact as we think, but we can all really circle back to some political motivations as well as growing public concern in the 70s. Right. Crime was on the rise, um, violent crime in particular. There was a growing sense that our efforts to keep people in the community or to be more rehabilitative oriented just wasn't working. And so we have a, a, a constellation of factors really that are combining to create a, a landing stage that just was very prime to start incarcerating people. And a very common when we hear about violent crime happening or crime happening is that somebody should be punished. We're a punitive society in general. And we're thinking if rehabilitation doesn't work, we are going to then instead make really tough penalties with the threat of incarceration um, or that going to prison is going to be bad and people are going to stop doing it or we're just going to incapacitate people from being able to continue on. And that's where the policies really took off in terms of mandatory sentencing is probably yeah. a really broad term, but probably one of the more impactful things that we've done is limit the discretion mm-hmm. and enforce much more automatic sentences, meaning for some types of crimes and felonies that it was an automatic prison sentence and then oftentimes for a set number of years. And that was probably one of the greatest changes that uh, happened in terms of you know, pe- more people than are going to prison mm-hmm. for a longer period of time. Yes. We, yeah, we start on that. We have a war on sort of crime to start with and then mm-hmm. narrow into the war on drugs. And it goes along with that mandatory sentencing. Right. Auto-generated. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, okay. And um, there was a thought that I had when we were, uh, when you just said that um, um, about the... Sorry, I lost that, but that's okay. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> like you said, so it seems as if we've been adopting this kind of idea and we talk about this all the time in criminology mm-hmm. and criminal justice of like using deterrence uh, as a way to get people to stop engaging in crime and maybe they'll rationalize. People truly understand the consequences is kind of what we we been using the last couple of decades and what we're still kind of using and it's very clear that that's not working um it's hard because it makes sense it should make sense right Most of us think that very rationally that I'm, I'm not going to speed because I'm late to work because I, I just got a speeding ticket two weeks ago or I know that you know mm-hmm. bad things could happen if I if I go rob a bank but Circumstances can be so different that people right. who crimes are often not super rational in that exact moment, that they're not thinking of these pros and cons and, you know, deciding like we do when we are at the grocery store on what I should buy or I shouldn't. Right. It, it assumes a lot about human nature that doesn't really turn into actuality. Yeah. And that's I think that's one thing that I definitely have noticed in like just a lot of fields of like the um, sociocultural context is taken out of a lot of things and not included so like you said we're not taking into into account the duress someone may be under at the time they committed a crime mental health history that they may have or just like social disadvantage Um, I know a lot of times people engage in crime because of they need their needs met um, and, you know, that seems what's feasible for them at the moment. Um, and, you know, I hate that, you know, that that's how it has to turn out sometimes. And, um, but yes, I don't think we take that role into consideration a lot. Um, so I guess another 
area that we can kind of take this in is also like how have these policies impacted like these communities that are poverty stricken or consisting of, you know, predominantly minorities? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've seen those those effects that a lot of it is from getting tough on crime and mandatory sentencing to including, you know, a number of drug possession, trafficking um, and related crimes is that that turns into, again, less discretion and a greater destabilization of those communities. What we didn't touch on is that something where the worst at why deterrence often doesn't work is that we're simply not super good at catching crime, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Our yes. clearance rates are pretty small. So the risk of getting caught is relatively low. Right. Um, we're really good at being certain and punishing people once they are caught. We're very good at being severe. We're very good at, at that aspect of it. But we're not great at policing and mm-hmm. catching all of the crimes in terms of what's happening, violent crimes to a greater degree. But we do know that those communities that have been more impacted, especially those when we're talking about mandatory sentencing for drug related crimes, mm-hmm. they're policed a lot more. That there's a greater visible and active policing strategies going on in those neighborhoods. And it sort of feeds into this cycle of incarceration. We know from self-report that in terms of drug use, even sometimes drug trafficking, that there aren't really these disproportionate racial differences mm-hmm. that oftentimes, especially if you look at juveniles who are experiencing drugs, uh, white juveniles tend to be actually a little bit more involved. So it's not a behavioral difference, but our response is very differential. And they often do target these very dis- already disadvantaged neighborhoods that, as you point out, often are very uh racially or ethnic persons of color who predominantly live in those. And again, it's hard to untangle, you know, X, Y, and Z from all of that. Um, And I often look just a little bit more at that bigger picture. So the totality of that effect is, you know, we're taking a lot of people out of those neighborhoods for a lot of period of times and then putting, putting back in at a disadvantage to gain stable employment, stable jobs and businesses in those neighborhoods trust amongst neighbors, people willing to come in and, you know, spend money and economically drive those types of neighborhoods, you know, events that bring people together. And it's, it just sort of is a really difficult cycle to break. And that's why we see generational incarceration impacts and, you know, just that revolving door. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's a great place to kind of transition into, you know, talking about release. So can you talk a little bit about what the redo- what the revolving door phenomena is. Um, we've kind of mapped out how we got here, um, but can't talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah, and actually the revolving door of incarceration is another driver of incarceration, unfortunately, <laughs> um, that it's really hard uh, to come home from prison and for a number of reasons uh, that it are really too much to get into here. Right. But a lot of it is, just general instability, housing instability, employment instability. Some of it's just very difficult to be under supervision. Most people who come home from prison are doing so under some sort of a parole status, meaning we don't just send people out of the gate at prisons and say, good luck. Uh, we, we put conditions on to supervise them, uh, whether it be you know notification of uh, residence changes, that you meet with a parole officer, that you, you have some tabs and conditions kept on you. Those can be hard to keep up with. They sound straightforward, you know, don't don't own a gun, don't use drugs and alcohol, don't associate with deviant peers. But going back to our what we're talking about, neighborhoods 
that you're returning to, it's going to be hard to get a job. There might not be a lot of housing available, but you might be around a lot of um, potentially gang or antisocial associates. So it's very easy to get into trouble again, both on what we call a technical level that you can sort of violate the rules of that supervision, but also to be rearrested, you're under a greater amount of surveillance and uh, uh, suspicion. Yeah. Society of suspects is what we call it. And what that turns into is a potential parole revocation or a new crime where people who are released from prison are, you know, heading back into those doors within three years. The mm-hmm. rearrest rate is about 66%, which is a, a high estimate um, in terms of how we define that simply because people who are justice involved are arrested at a higher rate uh, regardless. But we do see that about 40% do end up back in prison within three years. And that number has come down just a little bit. We used California is a really good example of this in the 2000s in terms of incarcerating about the their entries were about 60, 65% of all their entries were probation and parole violators. Right. Uh, so the people who are already on supervision who just kind of come in back in for a couple of months, a year, go back out or coming back in, go back out. Uh, again, making that just a really difficult cycle because we're good at responding to when people fail. They, they are unable to get a job or they fall behind on their uh, repayments to the court system or are homeless. But what we're not good at doing always is providing the resources to address those failures from happening in the first place. Right. Yes. And like you said, we have a, a lot of people that are a good the reality is like the people that are going into prison, they're coming home and Mm -hmm. we don't have the resources, especially when you start getting to urban versus rural settings. Like it just becomes a little bit more complex. And I think like, as I know for somebody who was stepping into this field um, or this area of interest, when I first became interested in this is like, I didn't directly understand, like, because I'm not a person that has had this experience, I don't understand the direct impact of incarceration. But as an individual who has had family members, I definitely understand the indirect effect of, like, mass incarceration and kind of what going through this cycle continues to do to your family and neighborhoods. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about this indirect effect of how this impacts our society um, and like essentially the so what, who cares of and why we should be addressing mass incarceration. That's a, such a good question. And I think this is the, one of the first things I have my students think about that in, mm-hmm. incarceration sounds very individual. One person commits a crime and, and goes to prison, but very rarely we we're very social society. We don't live in bubbles that we're all individuals. So every single action for that individual has likely has some family or friend support is living in a community has all of these networks and really broad landscape that could be very heavily impacted. And I, Mm -hmm. you raised a really good point that most people who go to prison are coming home, right? 95% of people who go to prison are likely to exit those doors in, in some way, shape or form. So they're coming home back to families We'll talk at this very immediate level. So trying to reestablish relationships with their parents or children or siblings, often relying on them for financial support, for housing, for job connections, for transportation, for these very basic needs that families often share that burden. And again, coming back to likely more, uh, more 
situations of instability, that that can be a financial burden on the family, that that can be an emotional burden on the family, that people are coming out under parole supervision and now they're living at at home with their parents, but now that entire residence becomes um, a little bit less private that the probation right. or parole officer is able to come into. Custody battles rage. Uh, relationships are very difficult to maintain during incarceration. So even going to prison for two to three years are going to cut some of those ties and be very expensive and emotionally draining to maintain those relationships. And again, at the community, it just sort of continues to extend those ripple effects mm-hmm. into, you know, we should care because it's devastating for families. And we know that, again, uh, children of incarcerated parents face a lot of challenges while their parents are incarcerated and after, that there's greater behavioral uh, disorders, greater likelihood of increased uh, aggression, greater likelihood of delinquency, poor school outcomes, just generally more, uh, more unstable things that are potentially going to put those individuals at a higher risk of becoming involved in crime as adults. And that's what we do see those, those sort of transfer effects. Mm-hmm. Hard to understand. The research is a little limited because we don't have a great research design to say we're not going to send a parent to prison and not just to see see what happens. Right. But we, we do see these trends in terms of um, educational outcomes, uh, income outcomes, you know, the grandparents may become caretakers uh, mm-hmm. over and above when, when the parents are incarcerated or that the foster system and these social services get overburdened. Right. That people come home from prison need public assistance or public housing. And those are already very deprived systems. And now we have more people, you know, placing demand on that. So again, as taxpayers, we should be concerned because we're spending a lot of money on prison and we're spending a lot of money on additional social services that aren't doing a very good job of preventing crime altogether. So we just see more and more costs continue to accumulate from our moral standpoint we just have a lot of people behind bars under our most mm-hmm. severe sanction. And it's not just them that we're incarcerating. There's some great, um, great research in this in terms of like doing time together mm-hmm. is what we call it. And, you know, the, the demands of that. Um, and again, the reentry burden of providing support. Most are happy to do it. And they uh, oftentimes that wouldn't be framed as a familial burden. They're happy to have, you know, their son or daughter back home, in, in their bedroom. But again, we, from an external perspective, we know that that is probably going to accumulate into some pretty, pretty tough situations moving forward. Yes. So kind of what I'm hearing from you is definitely like, not only is the stigmatization that the individual is facing and the hardships that they're facing, but they're being projected onto the families that they're in, um, to the communities that they're returning to. And essentially us as taxpayers, like you said, we're contributing this money or these funds to, you know, incarceration, but not to create adequate services for these individuals to stop that cycle. Um, And so we continue to see this cycle of disruption in neighborhoods and families. And and like you said, you've mentioned earlier, generational patterns of behavior, generational incarceration, which is just not serving us any well. Um, yeah. And I'm, and then like, it, it just hurts to even talk about that or to like, to see that in families. Um, it is a tough topic. Yeah, for sure. 
And I think we do need to spend more time in this area of trying to address these issues. And I'm wondering, just like in your professional opinion of what specific areas do you think we need to be targeting um, as a system, as practitioners, in order to kind of start moving in this direction of reducing mass incarceration? Yeah, I think I'm, I touched on this earlier. And what we're really good at doing is responding after the fact of crime. And incarceration mm-hmm. is one of those. And we're, we're very willing as, you know, from this practical standpoint is, okay, more people are committing crimes. Let's build more prisons and sort of tackle it after the fact and provide more resources for supervision and attention. Mm-hmm. And what is a lot harder to do because the effects aren't as visible, they're not as tangible, is to provide more preventative um, programs, things that we do at a very small scale that are very popular are things like the Big Brothers Big Sisters program. Mm-hmm. That's a preventative program because it's identifying at-risk youth. Head Start programs are preventative. They're identifying what we know are risk factors and putting, giving some sort of educational heads up or a mentorship or additional pro-social connections in those those lives. And we know that they work. Those are really relatively effective programs in comparison to things like DARE to try to deter drug use and trafficking. Those programs are very unsuccessful when it's a sort of a scared straight or um, a deterrent sort of based program. Scared straight programs are very popular. We all watched it on, you know, A&E and Netflix and and, and they don't work. They're entertaining, um, but they certainly don't have those long-term effects. So we need to reinvest more at the, the beginning. And at the end, in terms of understanding what is causing people to either commit crime in the first place, or perhaps what's maybe more tangential that we can focus in on now would be what's causing people to fail after incarceration, mm-hmm. providing things like direct links to employment, to provide some financial stability. Uh, I evaluated a program in St. Louis that uh, provided direct rental assistance for a certain amount of time, and they gradually took more rental uh, responsibility on over time. And it works very well. So giving people some of these things like housing and employment and emotional uh, pro-social support works much better than more electronic monitoring or Mm -hmm. more drug testing and more that. So really addressing what we call the criminogenic needs, what we know are very well correlated with failure is absolutely what we need to do. It's a harder sell because it sounds like it's coddling. It sounds like you're being soft on crime mm-hmm. or ignoring, you know, some, let's, let's face it. People who are incarcerated have done serious, violent things, right. but we're often very able to figure out, well, why did that happen or change attitudes and behavioral responses to those situations? We have a whole host of research that shows what effective programming looks like. Mm-hmm. But it tends to be a more expensive upfront cost rather than supervision. And so we're like, oh, well, we have a cheaper option, but it ultimately costs more in the long run. Right? Yeah. Think of it like cutting corners as you're building a house. This is cheaper, you know, to only put this degree of uh, of plaster down mm-hmm. and that's going to be good. But you're going to end up with a plumbing leak that's going to cost you thousands more mm-hmm. in the long run. And so when we ignore programming and ignore targeted intervention for those that we know are at the greatest risk, it costs us more in the long run to reincarcerate them. Right. It's pretty expensive to keep people in prison. It's, mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I, I tossed that one out there yet, but it's anywhere between 20 to $30,000 per year per individual. 
That's right. a college tuition year. <laughs> and so, it is. <laughs> and it's crazy to think like that. And we're very willing to spend that to detain somebody when we know that spending a little bit more up front could turn into, well, we don't have to pay that much per person anymore because um, we could keep them out of prison altogether. Right. Yeah. So it seems like we need to be focusing, like you said, that preventive measures um, and looking at, yeah, looking at preventive measures as well as looking at why are people failing when they are coming out and kind of addressing those things. I'm also wondering just a little bit about, you mentioned like stigma and attitudes. I know a lot of times stigma and these attitudes kind of inform policies. And I'm wondering, like, what can we do on a community level to kind of address stigmatization or, you know, reduce the kind of negative attitudes that are often um, that people often have towards, you know, individuals who are impacted by the criminal justice system? Well, well, there's your million dollar question. Right. That's a tough one because we set up stigma in a lot of ways. There are ways we do this legally and, you know, uh, have public registries or your criminal record is very public knowledge. It's very easy to find. I always joke with my students that you can find the speeding ticket I got when I was 17 years old mm-hmm. um, on Iowa courts online. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's still there, you know, decades later. It's hard to hide a criminal conviction. There's different ways to deal with this in different schools of thought. Some say sort of a, a reintegrative shaming, I'm a little theoretical for a moment, but, you know, acknowledging that people have committed bad actions, but they're not a bad person. And that's the struggle we go back and forth with. Prior to sort of the 1970s, it was, you know, you're a person who did a bad thing. How can we help? And we transition into you're a bad person who does bad things. And what we're trying to dial back to is, again, you are a person who who committed a crime. And that that shouldn't be your entire identity. Boy, that that is a hard bell to unring. Mm And as we said, you know, families can take on that stigma, individuals, employers ask about, you know, arrest history, not even conviction history. Landlords are doing background and credit checks to get into colleges and to sort of advance. You're constantly carrying that scarlet letter F as a felon around with you as a formerly incarcerated person. Right. And there's different ways to deal with that. Um, Some people outright just try to keep it a secret or hide it to Mm -hmm. varying degrees of effect. But what we have are some of these more reintegrative and redemption ideals. Some get involved with, uh, we call them kind of wounded healer programs where they become mentors for formerly incarcerated people, get involved with substance abuse programs at the local level or more community efforts where they're showing the community, hey, I'm a person, I'm a resident here too. I'm invested, I'm engaged. I'm showing you how I've grown and changed. Mm-hmm. What gets frustrating is sometimes there's legal limits to that, whether or not they're even allowed to, that there's licensing and uh, restrictions on where you can live or what you can do or who you can be around. Right. But we know even those small scale efforts can make make a, a big deal. Um, it's just really hard to manufacture, though, mm-hmm. <laughs> those types of events and opportunities. What I would say is that so many people are sort of gaining direct experience with incarcerated persons who have family or friends or see it in their community is that there might be a sort of a shift in saying this hasn't worked. Being tough on crime hasn't worked. And I know individually people who maybe didn't deserve that or who have really shown change. 
So it starts at those, that very micro level in terms of acceptance. And I'm willing to give people a chance. There are employers who make it a point to sort of prioritize uh, felons. Dave's, Dave's killer bread mm-hmm. is actually a, a funny example of this. And I say funny, haha, but it's actually a phenomenal company. And he hires formerly incarcerated individuals. That's actually a requirement to give them a chance. And it's been very successful. They get a very stable job, make a good product. uh, And people are like, hey, that sounds kind of cool. And you have different, um, less nationally known sort of brands and companies that are are trying to do that, whether because they get an economic advantage from it. Mm -hmm. Um, But oftentimes they're a little bit more willing to say, I can give somebody a second chance. Yes. Um, I will say that's one thing that I have noticed just like in my own experience of like trying to get into this population is contact. Contact is a very big thing. Um, and I I think it's so easy for individuals, you know, who don't have contact with, uh, people in this group to kind of have those negative attitudes, um, towards them. Um, but I think when you really, you get in here and you start working with them and you, um, you know, just having somebody in your family, you you really get a better understanding and you get that uh, context uh, and you, you're able to apply it to their situation. And it, it does kind of change attitudes. Um, and uh-huh. I think that's something that we should, I think as practitioners and um, especially going in the field of like psychology that we should expand more into is kind of outreach and kind of trying to promote these uh, these ways of contacting people who are not just in justice involved populations but any stigmatized group um because that's just the best way to kind of change attitudes and promote change um you may so, draw from mental health fields on that that's how we you know yes. some of our first stigma works really looked at how to how to sort of reframe and readdress uh people who had you know experienced institutionalization on that level and so maybe taking a lead from some of that in terms of reintegration and support and how how we can be you know a better community we know that's going to lead to much better results yes for sure and I think that leads me to like one of my last questions because I know not all of our audience is practitioners or some of them are just family members of or just people that are interested what are some things that they can do on their own to kind of advance criminal justice reform you know in order to get to this goal of kind of reducing mass incarceration? That's a good question again. Um, so, <laughs> you know, there's there's different things. And some of it starts with um, laws and policies and legislation at the local, state, federal level. And so the incarceration became very political as mm-hmm. well in terms of, you know, parties aside, every, every single person in government it doesn't want to look at being soft on crime. Right. And who are you um, electing that is has been more supportive of you know rehabilitative programs or diversion over incarceration? But we're not throwing incarceration out together. But but looking at that, you know, as you as you go to the polls and you're we're putting people that are putting restrictive laws or maybe more treatment oriented laws into place. Mm-hmm. That a number of smaller communities have lots of local services okay. that um, provide housing. Um, or resources or connections to formerly incarcerated persons. Uh, Homeless shelters, it's not uncommon to have restrictions because they're, again, in relatively high demand, but there are some that provide housing for formerly incarcerated persons. Mm -hmm. I know there's constantly looking for, you know, 
aid there, whether it be professional clothing or resources in terms of, are you somebody who is willing to hire or knows of job opportunities for formerly incarcerated persons that, you know, at the local sort of grassroots level, these more volunteer service-oriented agencies are doing a lot of this work mm-hmm. in terms of promoting programming. And they take financial resources to provide housing, to provide uh, treatment programs, to provide some of these connections, to even have space for a person to come in and, and do these. You often see a connection to various religious-oriented uh, agencies that um, many of these are nonprofit. Uh, that are really just using this as an opportunity to provide a service to a very needy population. So at that local level, likely in your community, there are agencies or centers or a way in which, you know, there's there's some help to be provided or just even awareness is mm-hmm. huge right now. And, uh, you know, knowing that, boy, we we have set a record in incarcerating a whole bunch of people in our country. This is very different than what other places are doing. You know, how can I and daily interactions change some of how we feel about this? So spreading the word in terms of here are some of the common problems. Failure doesn't mean a violent failure that people are going back to prison because they are truly terrible people and can't control violent tendencies. But often they're really, you know, it's an enforcement that they're failing on very small level things. So I'm trying to do a little bit better on that. Not a very clear answer because it's no. really hard to unwind how we've gotten to this point. Um, but a lot of it's at that local level for sure. Right. And yeah, and that's why I would encourage like our listeners to, you know, take the advice that you very much just said of like looking at who you're voting for and what their, um, you know, opinions are about incarceration and how they handle and respond to those things, as well as just going and looking to see what local um, opportunities are available for you to even volunteer and mentor or to serve on councils, those type of things. I know those are things that I have found as I've moved around, that there are various councils out there that are dedicated to reentry and um, they meet and, you know, they do a lot of different things to support uh, these individuals. So I would definitely encourage our listeners to do that. And if I find anything that is available, as far as of like state opportunities, I'll be sure to put that in the description box. Um, before we end off here, I want to just ask, uh, is there anything else that you feel like we need to talk about that is important for the audience to know as it pertains to this topic? I think, you know, it's important as you start moving through different topics in this, there are no simple answers. There's always just so many reasons how we ended up here. It's not just because, you know, we've incarcerated drug offenders. It's not just because we have mandatory sentencing, but we are very good at creating this cumulative effect of lots of little things that have gotten us to this point of, like I said, we've gone just a little bit down on incarceration, but we still have pretty high incarceration rates. And so a lot of that is complicated to understand, and but it also gives us a lot of different ways to chip away at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, a lot of it is about our attitudes towards offending in general, you know, that um, how and why that occurs mm-hmm. and what we can do at the outset, maybe to divert or prevent better. Yeah, I think that's great. And that I think that's a great way to end this. And, um, you know, we have talked about a lot today, just 
even just starting from the beginning of like what mass incarceration looks like in the United States and the kind of the historical context of and the factors that have kind of led us into this continuous cycle, as well as even looking at, you know, what we can do as individuals to support how it indirectly impacts the, you know, the families, the communities that these um, this particular group is returning to. And Brianne, I'm really grateful for you coming on here and, you know, talking about these things and kind of setting this foundation. Like we said, this is a very intense topic. It can be something that is difficult to understand. But like I said, I feel like you've, you've been able to give us a clear understanding of this. Um, so yeah, is there anything else you would like to add or anything you would like to say before we end off here? No, this was great. I hope, I hope it, helps inform and, and keep learning about this. It's such a big topic that I think a lot's pretty easy to ignore <laughs> because yes. uh, it's, they're an ignorable population, less sympathy than a lot of our other needs that we currently have, but definitely important. Okay. Yes. Thank you. And yes, thank you for that. And you guys, if you want to keep up with uh, Brienne, be sure to follow her on Twitter. Her Twitter at name is Bree Plague, and that's B-R-E-P-L-E-G-G. Um, be sure to follow her on there. And while you're in the mood for following, also be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts. Push that subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at More Life The Reentry Podcast. And thank you for tuning in with us today. Have a great day.